Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, George Mason University is hiring graphic design faculty for the George Mason University School of Art in Fairfax, Virginia. NWEA is looking for an experienced design lead for school improvement services. This is a six-month contract to hire position, and it's open for remote candidates as well as those in Portland, Oregon. For just $99, you can post your job listing with us where it will be on our job board for 30 days and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. We also offer annual job board subscriptions. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I just want to remind you once again about our annual audience survey. Now, Revision Path has been around for over eight years now, which is a lifetime in podcasting. And as we've grown as both a show and as a platform, we've always taken in audience feedback for topics, guests, and pretty much anything else. So whether you're new to the podcast or you're an old fan, we want to hear from you. Head over to revisionpath.com forward slash survey to take this year's audience survey. Only takes about five minutes or so, and one lucky respondent will win a $100 Amazon.com gift card. Now, the survey ends at the end of this month on May 31st, so you don't have a lot of time. We'll also tweet about the survey, we'll put it on Instagram, and there'll be a link to it in the show notes for all of the episodes for this month. Again, that's revisionpath.com forward slash survey. Now let's take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with design educator Kalina Sales, Interim Chair of the Department of Art and Design at Tennessee State University. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, I'm Kalina Sales. I'm a design educator, illustrator, researcher from Nashville, Tennessee. I teach design at Tennessee State University, where I'm also serving this year as the Interim Chair of the Department also serve on the steering committee for AIGA's Design Educators Community. Wow. How's uh, 2021 been going for you so far? (laughs) 
you know what? It's been good so far. It's been really, really busy. 2020 was busy. And then I, I feel like, like 2021 is just sort of a continuation of that. Lots of really cool opportunities have come up. Uh, there have been a couple of book projects and conferences and some speaking engagements and things that have kept me really busy. That's been really nice. And it sort of like serves as a good balance for me between my teaching role at TSU. Is it hard kind of trying to balance the teaching along with these other opportunities? It can be, yeah. I mean, this year's been weird anyway, just because of all of the virtual instruction and then having to figure out how to deliver content to students in addition to taking on this interim chair's position for the first time and learning how to serve in like an administrative capacity. Mm -hmm. That's been a lot of really like a new space for me. And so doing a lot of the like the book projects and, and sort of my I guess, field work has really served as a really nice balance. So it keeps me really busy, but I I really like being able to do all of the extra projects. Uh, I feel like it really gives me the context that I need to be a better educator. Mm. Let's dive into more of the work that you're doing at at Tennessee State. So your interim chair of the, which department is it again? It's the Department of Art and Design. Art and Design, okay. Yeah, studio and design. Wow. And I would imagine, you know, with sort of this, I guess, hybrid, I don't know, is it sort of a hybrid thing now that students are getting vaccinated and such, or is it still yeah. all virtual? Well, we have a few hybrid courses, but we're, uh, this past year, a lot of the delivery has been virtual. So we've been trying to stay away from each other as much as possible, but there've been some classes, the more studio-based courses, so like ceramics or sculpture and those types of things uh, that are kind of difficult to teach just online, those have been meeting a little bit in person. For my design classes, I've been all virtual, though. How has it been trying to teach design virtually? It's not terrible. Like, I mean, you know, obviously with design, we have the benefit of using the computer as our main tool. So it's been fine in that way. One of the challenges, though, is I'm used to, like a lot of other design educators and just educators in general, like I'm used to walking around the classroom and assessing students' work and sort of being there with them as they're navigating through some of their challenges and and helping them to see things, you know, as they're working. And so you lose some of that when in the virtual space because, Students are either working offline or they're not, you know, they're not sharing their screens with you while they're kind of going through those processes. And so that assessment and and kind of critique process really has changed quite a bit in the virtual space. And so that's the part that's tough, you know, and I think that the students are having a hard time with that. And that feedback loop is, is a little bit difficult for some of them. But again, I'm thankful, though, that we do get to just use our, our laptops for the most part to do our work. There have been some issues, though, with just access to laptops and software for some of my students. And so a lot of the students that I teach typically rely on using the computer lab to do a lot of their work, you know. And so we have seen a drop off in enrollment because some of the students who just don't have the materials to do it just didn't enroll in in classes this semester or this past year. So that's been, you know, really unfortunate. And I'm hoping that in the fall we'll see that turn back around. 
I was listening to uh, this podcast series from the New York Times called Odessa, and they have been following this, uh, really it was this high school girl in her class, her band actually, marching band. And it struck me just like, it has to be so hard for students right now everywhere, like Mm -hmm. regardless of the grade, because school is such a vital social function as well as a societal function. And when something like the pandemic kind of strips that away and, and turns it into a virtual experience, it's not just so much about, oh, you can't commune in public, but like it takes away something from like the whole society. So I can only imagine mm-hmm. trying to focus and learn and you can only do it on the computer and you can't really collaborate in person or, or knock ideas off of other people in real yeah. time in that way. It's really tough. Yeah, it is tough. And and a lot of the students, you know, everyone's wired differently. And so, you know, you have introverts like myself <laughs> who are completely fine, like being at home and away from people. But, you know, we have a lot of students who really, really do need that social component and, and, mm-hmm. and they're missing it. And so, yeah. And then all the other activities that you have with just college life in general, you know, outside of just your classes. And on an HBCU campus, one of the big draws to an HBCU for a lot of students is the community, you know, and it's yeah. that sense of being around your peers. And so when you're back isolated at home, you know, you're missing out on a big part of why you even attended college, you know, in the first place. Yeah, that's very, very true. Overall, though, I'd, I'd like to know, because I mentioned before we started recording that I've had a lot of design educators on the show this really this year. But what's the experience like teaching design at an HBCU? Like, what makes that special? Yeah, there's a really, I think, a kind of specific experience that happens when you're learning design at an HBCU. And and I'm sure it varies depending on, you know, which HBCU you're attending and all that. But a lot of the students that I teach, they come from cities like Memphis and Atlanta and Chicago and they are really from like black parts of town and then they come to a college that's predominantly black. And so your cultural kind of experience is very kind of specific and that comes out in your design work, at least in my experience, it has, you know, for the students. And so when we're teaching about international typographic style and Bauhaus and all of that, the students are engaged to certain extent, Mm -hmm. but they're very much interested in expressing their culture through design. And so I would say that's a really big distinction between like learning or experiencing design and learning design in an HBCU versus at a predominantly white institution is because you're surrounded by Black people, Black culture all the time, and you're not really in the minority yet. Yeah. And so the students that I teach often don't really see a need to create work that fits the mainstream necessarily. You know, they're not really pulled to do that or compelled to do that the way that I see Black students who are in predominantly white institutions doing. And so that's really interesting to observe. And it actually kind of is what created my personal like research interests in general. So yeah, so that's one of the the biggest observations I've made. And I would also imagine because you being a black design educator and it's at an HBCU, you don't dissuade students when they try to do that, right? Yeah, you know what, though? It's been a journey for me because I'll be honest and say that when I first started teaching, I was teaching very much the way that I was taught, you know? (laughs) And so I was teaching very much like 
again, international topographic style and sans serif and flush left. And these are the rules. And, mm-hmm. you know, a part of my, and I started teaching really like when I was 27. So it's been quite a few years ago now. And so I wanted my students originally to fit into the mainstream. I felt like that was going to be their path into the industry. And it very much still is, to be honest, but I've changed the way that I feel about that and the way that I teach about that now. And so instead of wanting them to squeeze into the mainstream, I just, I, I want the, there's a really good quote by an Afrocobra artist that says, Something about making the canon, instead of fitting into the canon, making the canon more elastic. And so that's sort of like how I approach it now versus the way that I taught in my really early years. So yeah, so now I'm encouraging them to consider the ways that their identity might show up Mm -hmm. and the way that their socioeconomic kind of status or upbringing might even influence their design work. Interesting. I'm thinking on how that would would look like. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Can you give an example of like what a student and you don't have to like call a student out by name or anything, yeah. but like what's an example of something that a student would do in that instance? I actually write about this in the book Extra Bold, but one really kind of specific example would be just even the way that we all view wealth or or money, for example, right? If you think about if you grow up wealthy or in a family that's, you know, pretty well off, your view of money is sort of kind of normalized. And and, and so if you were to ask to design a logo for a bank, for example, you might represent that in a really sort of corporate way. You know, it's like simplified, you know, typography and and that sort of thing. If you grew up uh, like I grew up, which was like, you know, inner city and not very well off, your ideas of what wealth looks like is very different. You know, it might be a little bit flashier, you know, and it might mm-hmm. have gold as a representation or some other kind of like symbolism that matches like that type of thinking. And so I see my students choosing like fonts and colors and textures that really speak to the like visual landscape and the culture in which they come from. And so there's a lot of, I think, influences from like hip hop, and just very like urban design and they don't shy away from that. And I, and I don't want them to. And so those are kind of some things that come to mind when I think about that, like specific aesthetic. The first thing when you said that, what what came to mind was, uh, I don't know if you, if you remember seeing this, but there's this black bank called one United bank and they had this visa card with Harriet Tubman on it doing the Wakanda salute. Oh, Okay. (laughs) And people, I mean, I saw it on Twitter and people clowned it, but like, <laughs> leave it to a black bank to do that. You know what I'm saying? You wouldn't see that at Wells Fargo. That ain't happening. <laughs> so, that, so yeah, that's funny. That Yeah, that sort of <laughs> pushes it into sort of a, you know, a space where those symbols, and, and I don't want to <laughs> criticize that, that design, but those symbols sort of take on a little bit of a, a stereotype. Or they don't mean as much. I, I think that it's hard to talk about Black aesthetics and Black design sometimes because I think sometimes we feel that we're being or we're describing like a monolithic viewpoint or like a monolithic experience when we mm-hmm. do that. And I, and that's certainly not ever like what I want to suggest. And I think it's true for everyone's experience. I think we just are all influenced by 
just the the things around us and the media that we consume and, and the way that we grow up, even our fashion choices respond to our culture as well. So those are really the things that I see. And your research focus, I mean, it plays into this about, mm-hmm. you know, Black culture and aesthetics. How did you end up deciding on that as a focus? Well, exactly sort of what I was just describing, which was, I started to notice that my students were making some choices. And so, for example, the students, a lot of my students were liking like the old English, uh, <laughs> like typeface. Uh-huh. And I was getting so frustrated. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, why do you guys keep choosing this? And I stepped back and I tried to be less critical. And I was like, well, where, why do they, you know, like this particular typeface? And why do I see certain color palettes kind of repeating like red and black and white and like really bold kind of color combinations. And I started to study a little bit about the mere exposure effect and subliminal exposure. I don't know if you are familiar with that or not, but no, I haven't heard of that. Yeah. So it just simply says like the more you see something, the more you like it. The subliminal exposure effect essentially just says that even when things are repeated subliminally and you don't notice that you're you're seeing something over and over again, you still end up having a a sort of a a preference for that. And so it's sort of similar to if you grew up in a household where people smoked cigarettes and then maybe as an adult, the smell of cigarette smoke is actually sort of calming to you because it reminds you of home. Or if you grew up in New York City and, and it's busy and loud, maybe a a very quiet kind of experience is discomforting to you. You know, it's sort of that kind of thing. So when we see things, you know, textures of the city, the sounds of the city, even like fashion choices, depending on what, if you're into sneakers or if you're into, you know, certain kinds of shoes, those like color palettes and things, they stick with us. Mm -hmm. And so I see that in the research that I'm doing, what I started to do in my research was like pull examples of my students' work and compare it to like the visual landscape of like urban environments. And I saw a lot of similarities between the two. So for like graffiti lettering and then like an interest in that kind of typography style or even like uh, textures from uh, city like walls or landscape, and then the textures that students are choosing, like in their uh, design work. And so I just think it's kind of interesting and fascinating. I, and, I, and although I specifically am interested in like the Black experience and particularly the urban Black experience, I think that this can certainly be true for people who grew up in rural areas or, you know, and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, so that that's sort of where that research interest comes from. It's it's directly from my students' experience and, and my experience observing them while teaching. Wow. Now, I want to kind of switch gears here a little bit. I know we're t- we've been talking about the work that you're doing at Tennessee State. Of course, a lot of the work you're doing with your students. Did you grow up also in Tennessee? I did. I grew up in Nashville and I okay. went to Tennessee State University for undergrad. So that's that's home and Nashville is home. Nice. Was, I would imagine, creativity and art were probably a big part of your like childhood and your environment growing up. You know what? Not really. <laughs> I wasn't really, I would say I wasn't exposed to a lot of art. My parents were military parents and my dad was in the army. My mom was in the army for a while. We sort of, it wasn't really a very artistic kind of like household. I was sort of the oddball in my family in, in terms of having an interest in that. But it was always supported, though. You know, when I when I did decide to pursue 
art as a career path. I was lucky that my parents were supportive of that. I know I teach a lot of students who say that their parents are sort of unsure or not supportive of that when they when they first decide to choose that as a major. Mm -hmm. So growing up in Nashville, I'd imagine Tennessee State was probably just always in your backyard. Yeah, it was. It was always like the only college, honestly, that I even considered going to. You know, when you grow up in Nashville, especially I went to like a black high school and was in the band. And so, you know, you kind of get used to that. Yeah. Like, that that culture and so we would march in like TSU's homecoming parades and so it was just always there yeah but part of I think about this sort of in hindsight sometimes because I didn't even know of any art schools back then like when I was thinking about going to college I had never heard of like just had never heard of like Micah or like you know RISD or I they just were not even they were completely foreign to me so I think about that too in terms of exposure uh, I wonder if I would have known what choices I would have made hmm you know it's funny you say that about like going to a black high school and and sort of being close to another historically black college so for folks mm-hmm. that know that have listened to the show I grew up in Selma Alabama and the nearest eight, well, we have an HBCU there. We have Selma University, but it's a small college. We don't, ha- it doesn't even have a band. Like nobody really <laughs> pays attention to it. But like Alabama State University in Montgomery was always like the school that we kind of, I wouldn't necessarily say emulated, but like we also would yeah. march in their homecoming parade and stuff. So that whole culture of all of that is just mm-hmm. so rich. I mean, Oh, yeah. see, now you got me thinking about marching band <laughs> and like memories of all of that is, is so rich. But it's interesting, though, about, yeah, like not really knowing about the possibility. I mean, when did you sort of know that you wanted to study design, like to go to Tennessee State and to study it? So I had an art teacher in high school and the class that we were in uh, was called commercial art. And I didn't know what that meant, but <laughs> for some reason, I really liked the way it sounded. And so I, I used to draw a lot. I didn't know anything about like computer graphics or what commercial art even meant, but I, for some reason, I like, I really grabbed a hold to that title. And so when I was choosing a major, I chose art. And then the first maybe year or two, after the first year or two of studying as a studio art major, I realized that I really, I liked painting and all of that, but I really did not, I was sort of afraid of pursuing like a career as a fine artist. I didn't want to like have to, I'd like had this weird vision in my head that I would be like standing on the corner, like trying to sell paintings for a living. And I was afraid of that lifestyle. And I was just like, I need to find something that has like in my mind more stability. And I was reading a magazine, I think it was like Essence magazine or something like that. And I, I came across the titles in the beginning of the magazine and it listed like, you know, art director and, and you know, all these other, and I thought, I don't know what an art director is, but that sounds like something that I want to do. And so I really clung to that. I started researching like early internet days. I started like researching like art direction and and found the VCU's brand center. It was called the ad center at the time, but found that program online. And, and that's sort of what took me off in that direction. Okay. And VCU's brand center, I mean, is well known, I think internationally well known. Um, and we've had another guest on the show, Brandon Viney, who also went, there. I think he grew up in and around Virginia, but he knew mm. about VCU. So certainly their program definitely cranks out people that can yeah. perform at like a top notch 
design level. How was it when you were there? It was amazing, to be honest. When I discovered the program and I set my sights on going there for grad school, I sort of like obsessively stalked their website and, you know, and tried to emulate the work that I saw coming out of that program. And when I got accepted and I went, it was all that I was hoping it would be. Like, it was intense and and rigorous. And I don't think it's really meant for... I mean, I have I have thoughts now about how it sort of does exclude people who could not go through a program like that because, they, you know, maybe they had to work or had other kind of obligations. But for those of us that were privileged enough to not have other obligations and could do that, I really learned a lot about how to just people think and how to solve not- problems and how to process ideas. And so I feel like, although I'm not working in the ad industry anymore, it definitely has affected every part of my career since then in terms of just me being able to think about things in more of like a problem solving and strategic viewpoint. Yeah, I know you uh, interned for JWT for a while and then you worked for several years at Doe Anderson, uh, Mm -hmm. which is an advertising firm. With that whole experience, how did it sort of bring you back to Tennessee eventually? When I worked at Doe Anderson, I worked there for a couple of years right out of grad school, and it was a good experience. But 2008, (laughs) right when the country was going through a recession, we lost a big client and I got laid off. And I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) What is happening? (laughs) I had just won some awards and I thought everything was going great. And it was sort of my, you know, one of the early shocks in my career that like things could be turbulent and things could sort of not go the way that you think they're going to go. And I don't know why I was one of the ones that was let go. And and honestly, it's, it's sort of a side note. I do think that it's possible that there was some cultural fit like issues, <laughs> but that's what made me move back to Nashville. I thought, okay, well, I'm out of work. You know, what do I do? And I started freelancing as a graphic designer and so I, that was really the first time that I, I really started to think about my skills as a designer a little bit more seriously than when I was doing the art direction thing. And so I got pretty serious about learning craft and, and, and investigating like typography a bit more. And that sort of kind of is what paved the way into me teaching design. I mean, the ad industry, though, is is notorious for being like <laughs> it kind of chews people up and spits people out. So that could have been for the best, you know? Yeah. Like at the time, it felt really crappy. But I, <laughs> I was like, you know, things happen for a reason. And I'm so happy with, you know, in hindsight, I'm I'm happy with the direction that my career has taken since then. But yeah, it's it's a tough industry to be in. I mean, so many ups and downs, so many people that I know that still work in the industry that have just been uplifted so many times and moved and, you know, and I think it's great if you have a passion for that, like if that's your thing and that's what you're really interested in and that's rewarding. But I think that I, my kind of forceful exit <laughs> was was what I needed to refocus on the things that I really care more about. Yeah. Now, you've mentioned you've been teaching for a number of years. We won't do the math on that. But how have you seen design education change since you started teaching? Oh, man, I think that, you know, one of the biggest ways is the the conversation surrounding diversity and the canon and decolonizing design. And I don't know if I was just disengaged or if they those conversations just weren't really happening when I first started teaching. 
So that's been one of the biggest ways that I've seen a significant shift in terms of pedagogy and just like the ways in which we are considering what we're teaching to the point where if I do teach things that are traditionally in the canon, I make sure that I'm providing like context, whereas Early in my teaching days, I wasn't doing that. So that context might be the reason why we're learning about this person is because there were other people that were excluded that could not be a part of this conversation, you know, and the reason why we're learning about this particular design style is because other design styles aren't in this book at all that we're using, you know, and so um I see that across the board. It's not, you know, just something that I'm doing. There's like tons of design educators that are revamping curriculum and really trying to respond to some of the changes that we've seen uh, socially over the past few years. Yeah, it has really been interesting how I didn't go to I didn't go to school for design, so I can't really speak on it from a historical standpoint. But certainly I know since I started doing this podcast back in 2013, it's amazing to see how educators have really started to come together, not just in, you know, as you say, kind of elasticizing the canon or like teaching Mm -hmm. outside of the canon, but also even coming up with other curriculum or, or even opening up their class to talk about these sorts of things because students, you know, like you say, you teach at an HBCU. So students are sort of coming with these questions or they're coming with, you know, these, these viewpoints and to not shy away from them and to be able to, like speak to them and place it in a modern context and place it in a mm-hmm. cultural context. Like, yeah, I mean, it's amazing just how much that has changed. Really, it feels like within the past maybe 10 years or so, it feels like it's really started mm-hmm. to grow around that. And I'm seeing it even from mostly white art institutions. I'm seeing the same thing oh, start yeah. to happen. So it's I'm glad that it's starting to take shape in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that a lot of people recognize the opportunity to make these changes and and are feeling some of the responsibility. I think as educators, we are certainly sort of on the front lines of, of reshaping the next generation of designers and the way that they approach design. And so I'm really happy with a lot of the conversations that I've you know listened to or, or been a part of even over the past couple of years that are really starting to push things forward. Yeah, I'd say even maybe, I mean, I guess the pandemic maybe might have accelerated this a bit, but now even seeing more events mm-hmm. around this. I remember 2015, Harvard's Graduate School, they have an African-American student union there, and they put together this conference called Black in Design. Mm-hmm. And the first year that they had it was in 2015. And I remember trying to get people that I knew, like, you know, peers and <laughs> friends to go, like, Let's go. It's at Harvard. And the tickets were like less than a hundred dollars. It was super mm. cheap. Mm-hmm. And, but they were looking at the program. And the thing was, it was called black and design, but it wasn't digital design. Like they were talking about, at least for the first year, like every other, they have the conference every other year. And for the first year, the theme was around the concept of space, like the oh. city, the neighborhood, the region, you know, et cetera. And so people were looking at that and I'm trying to get people to go and they're like, but they're not talking about Photoshop. <laughs> like they're not talking about Illustrator. Why would I go to a black and design conference? And they're not talking about digital design. I'm like, how many black design conferences have you been to <laughs> in your career? None. Let's just go. It's cheap. Yeah. Let's just go. And I've been fortunate to go every year that they've had it. I'm interested to see how they pull it off this year because I went last in 
2019 for their third installment. And I want to see how they do it this year. But I mean, last year, for example, and this year as well, there was State of Black Design that went on. Mm -hmm. There's Where Are the Black Designers? And I'm seeing even other colleges doing small little design speaking events and things like that. So it's really starting to like blossom. It's wonderful to see. Yeah, yeah. There's been a lot of really great programming. The State of Black Design, the one that you just mentioned with Amari Souza, I mean, incredible. I mean, and so I love it. I think, you know, the more that these types of things pop up, it's just going to further the conversation, get more people involved and engaged, and really kind of just like recognize that this movement is happening. And it's not just like a fluke. I think when there's just like one conference here, maybe some people will catch it. But when it's happening over and over and, and all around us, it, at some point you can't avoid it. And so you you have to kind of decide whether or not you're going to engage in this this change, in this movement. Have you seen any sort of pushback against it? I'm curious, like from a student standpoint. Not directly. I've not seen, my students have not pushed back against it. They're all about it. They're excited to learn about, again, Black culture, Black history, you know, and whatever that kind of, whatever discipline that comes from, like whether it's in their art history course or whether it's in like one of my design classes or so not directly with my uh, students. I have seen questions maybe from design educators surrounding like, you know, how do we engage students who aren't interested in this. So it, I would imagine at predominantly white institutions where this might seem like it's sort of like breaking from the norm of what's being taught, there may be more pushback. But I think overall, even at predominantly white institutions, there's a lot of excitement or a lot of recognition that these are important areas. And so, yeah, I mean, overall, it's it's going in the right direction. Well, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. (laughs) (laughs) At least in my experience. (laughs) Yeah. What would you say your students teach you? Oh, man. (laughs) Well, I think just they taught me to be a better professor and to understand context more. And they also taught me how to give feedback. (laughs) I think when, when I first started teaching, one area where I struggled was, you know, how do I communicate the things that I would like for them to focus on in a way that they'll understand it and in a way that doesn't feel subjective and like just a personal opinion. Mm -hmm. And so I had to learn that and I had to sort of read them and read their responses and figure out what was landing and what was not landing. And so I certainly, you know, have learned that from them just based on the ways in which they respond back to me when we're in class they also have really great ideas. I just sat in on a bunch of meetings today and yesterday where our seniors were presenting like their senior thesis projects mm-hmm. and they're choosing such interesting topics that are sort of blowing my mind. <laughs> you know, one student was is interested in fashion and she was addressing like ways that uh, the pandemic has changed our outlook on clothing and, and fashion. And then like another student was thinking about the ways in which like bias and stereotypes can be addressed through animation and cartoon. And like, there's all these like topics that they come up with that I'm just like, wow, that's really interesting. And I love to see like the way that they are processing, like how to use art and design in those ideas. So yeah, so I'm, I'm constantly learning from them. 
That's really interesting. Um, it's, it's, I don't know. I mean, of course, kids now have just so many different experiences that they're pulling from, especially during this, this current time. That part about the fashion, though, I mean, I can just personally attest. I'm looking at my, <laughs> I'm looking at my closet and I want to get rid of everything. Right. Like, yeah. I want to adopt like a minimalist capsule wardrobe at this point. <laughs> like, I look at my, like, my slacks and my suits and stuff. I'm like, I want to get rid of all of this because I haven't had to wear it. I haven't had to like go anywhere with it. So that's yeah. exactly what the student, yeah, was sort of suggesting. It's like, we're kind of, we're liking this comfort thing, you know, <laughs> let's get, let's get more of that, more yoga pants and sweatshirts. And so, Yeah. And then even just sort of like this particular project, for example, the student was even questioning, you know, are we learning more about sustainability? And like, are we, are we Mm. not comfortable being as flashy anymore? Like, you know, and so she was just, just really posing some really interesting, thoughtful questions. And and those are the things that are really refreshing to hear, especially from, you know, really young designers. That is a great question. Now that you've mentioned that, I'm just thinking like when I scroll through Instagram, that is exactly what I see. I see, mm. I see so many tie dyed sweatshirts. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, of course, there's like muted color palettes. Yeah. There's talk about, you know, sustainability and organic and all this stuff, but everything is very beige. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. <laughs> that makes us feel like we're being <laughs> socially conscious, I guess. Beige is the color of being socially conscious. Yeah. (laughs) So there's, you know, we've been talking about design educators kind of touching on that earlier, but there's also been this kind of pretty regular conversation in the design community around, you know, maybe the lack of black design educators. What do you think contributes to that? I just think that we're underrepresented across the board in the industry, in design and in education, higher education. On the end of higher education, I mean, most accredited, well, I guess depending on if you're a state school or how your funding works, you have to have a terminal degree to work as a college educator. So that's the MFA in most cases. And so that already pushes a lot of people out of the possibility of of pursuing this. I know a ton of amazing Black designers uh, that went to college for it and, and and would be incredible. But like a lot of other designers, they're working, they're doing their practice. And so they didn't go and get that MFA teaching degree, you know. And so Mm -hmm. that's one of the ways that I see that it's limiting because it, it begins to be really expensive. Obviously, the more education you're pursuing. And so those advanced degrees, you're having to decide on, do I want to get student loan debt, you know, and is this worth it? And is the college like teaching job going to sort of offset the cost of all of this? And so that's a really big consideration depending on who you are and where you're from and what sort of like maybe even generational wealth you might or might not have. And so I think that can contribute to the lack of diversity in education in general, higher education in general. But then even as designers, there's just so few still so few like black designers working in this space that it just gets narrowed even further when you add in another criteria. So it's black designer and educator. So it's the numbers just get real slim. So, yeah, I could see that. I mean, I think, you know, visibility is, is sort of one part of that, you know, as you mentioned, like 
you just kind of don't really see that many. Although now I think you're seeing more and more with these events and speaking and things like that. But also, I, I wonder if students, as they're learning, are they also kind of being enlightened about going into design education as well? Yeah, probably not as much as we should. I mean, I, I was actually just before joining this call with you, I was listening to Jacinda Walker do a presentation about the work that she's doing. And she pointed out that there are, I think, 300 and something Black design educators across the country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, you know, that's a really tiny number. And she actually just mentioned something about, uh, to your point, we sort of need to do a better job of advocating for our career and talking about it and communicating, you know, to younger students, you know, what it is that we do and and some of the things that we enjoy about this. I think that there's still, I guess, a little bit of a misconception in terms of what teachers do or, you know, and a lot of people, I think there's still a little bit of that idea of like, if you're, what is it saying? Like, if you're good, you do. And if you, if you're not, you, you teach or. Oh yeah. Like those who can do and those who can't teach. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that can sometimes the mindset of a lot of creatives. So if you're in a creative field, you really do have that itch inside of you to do the work, right? You want to practice. And so teaching feels like, well, I'm not going to be able to do the work. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be like in this box where I'm like, you know, not really practicing. But what I would love for people to know is like when you're uh, working in um, higher education, you know, as a professor, research component that a lot of us are, you know, asked to do allows for us to grow our practice and really do a lot of like personal projects that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do, you know, if you were working in the industry. So I've seen my personal work grow since being an educator. Now, is that sort of how you came across doing the book? Extra Bold? Yeah. Yeah. See, I was trying to give you a good segue into it. but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, I actually met Ellen Lupton. She came to Nashville, I think it was 2019. And she was AIGA Nashville. I serve on the board for AIGA Nashville, and we hosted her, and she was actually doing a presentation for one of the really early like iterations of the book before it took the shape that it is now, and we took her to dinner. The board of directors for AIGA Nashville took her to dinner, and we sort of chatted and just touched base and kind of do what you do when you're at dinner, and she followed up and asked a few questions, and, and eventually... I was going to be a contributor for a small part of the book, along with so many other like amazing contributors. And that was where it was for a while. And then I got an email last year, sometime from her, where she invited me in to be a co-author and do some more writing in the book. And so that's that's how that took shape. So it's been amazing to be a part of that collaborative project. And what I love really most about that book in particular is that it involves so many different voices and perspectives and narratives. And you hear from people like me, who I don't think typically has this sort of platform. And so I love it. You know, I feel like I'm learning so much from the other co-authors and the other contributors in the book. And now when does the book come out? So Extra Bold will be released on May 11th. And so Really soon. It feels like it's been in the works for quite a while now, but just a couple more weeks. It'll, at least from the time we're recording the podcast, I don't know when it'll be released, but uh, May 11th is when the books will be on the shelves and nice. available 
Yeah, so I'm excited about that. Yeah, by the time this airs, it'll be out. So it'll, okay, it'll be good. all good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's exciting. So. so about your work with AIGA Nashville on the board, what is it like sort of serving a chapter that's in a city like Nashville? Like, I've had other people from Nashville on the show before and even other people from Tennessee, but I don't know if people might think of Nashville as being a really sort of design hub or a design city of any sort. Yeah, at Nashville, yeah, we're known for our music, country <laughs> music, um, but we do have a a pretty good design community in Nashville. And what's really interesting about the board and what I love about AIGA's Nashville board is it's extremely diverse, uh, much more diverse than the industry is. Like mm-hmm. we have maybe... black designers and lots of women designers. And just, it's just a very welcoming kind of place and community to be a part of. And, and it was really the first organization that I took on any sort of a leadership role. I was the director of education for a while. And then I transitioned over into being the director of diversity and inclusion. And just by being involved, I have met so many other like wonderful designers. And I didn't realize that I was missing out. You know, I think that naturally a lot of artists, designer types are kind of in our own little like circles or worlds. And when I joined the board, it sort of forced me to grow and be a part of the larger like Nashville design community. And I certainly feel like I've benefited from doing that. I love just being a part of the events and figuring out like content that will service the the community there. What are some like upcoming events and things that you all are planning to do this year? Well, we always participate in Nashville Design Week. And so we're brainstorming some ideas for that. It's not released yet, but we typically invite in some inspiring like guest speakers. Last year, we did a panel with Mitsuoku from the Where the Black Designers Conference and Forrest Young and Bobby C. Martin. And, uh, and we just had an amazing like conversation about the experience that they've had working as uh, Black designers in the field. So it's sort of this year will hopefully be like a continuation of those types of conversations. And so we also do a lot of programming. I don't serve as the educator in the educator role anymore on the board, but we do a lot of programming for students. Mm. So we do a lot of like portfolio reviews and meetups for students. And so that's always fun to help them get their like foot in the door. Now I kind of want to, you know, switch gears here again. You know, we've been focusing again a lot on your work and the things that you're doing, but I'm curious, what is it that sort of keeps you motivated and inspired to really continue this work? I think it's really the more that I work and the more that my work sort of shifts, I really want people to feel seen and I want to value the different experiences that Black and minority designers have in this industry. So that might be, again, looking at the ways in which there might be some differences in the ways that the portfolios from an HBCU might look versus like, a, you know, again, a predominantly white institution and like advocating for us to remove bias in our review practices. So it motivates me to talk about that and, and to share like students' work and students' experience. 
And it motivates me to continue to have conversations about just diversity and design in general and sort of like the implications of the lack of diversity on our experience when we're working as designers. You know, how does that affect our confidence? How does that affect our mental health? How does it feel to be the only Black designer in a creative department, similar to like when I was working at the ad agency? And, and sort of it motivates me to talk about that so that other young designers who are Black and are in those situations can feel seen, feel understood, and, and sort of recognize that they're not doing anything wrong, that, you know, it might just be that industry needs to catch up to fully appreciate, you know, their points of view. What do you want to accomplish this year? Wow. Aside from launching the book, I should say. Yeah, <laughs> that's a big one. But yeah, I want to actually write more, but I really would love to find a way to connect my illustration interest with design. Um, I feel like right now they're still living very separate lives. <laughs> I do a lot of like illustration work and portrait drawings and things, and but also obviously have a really big passion for design and writing. And so one thing I'd love to do is find a, a way where they can sort of like these things can coexist. And so I do a lot of like experimentation, uh, you know, and I'm trying to figure that out. And so I'll feel really satisfied if, if I can get to some sort of a solution on that. And especially if it continues to like elevate, um, elevate like, you know, uh, Black voices and experiences. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like what kind of work do you want to be doing? I, I was serving, like I said, as the interim chair. So the next year, I'll be the chair of the department. And I think I'd like to be still in that position in five years. And so that's a lot of administrative work for the department. But what that looks like for me is like revamping, you know, curriculum and thinking about ways to get more of our students working in art and design spaces and like kind of facilitating that experience for them. So again, changing curriculum, getting them connected to mentors in the industry, and just doing all of that sort of work on behalf of the students that I teach, but more from like an administrative role and capacity. And so that's where I see a lot of my time being spent. I would also love to do illustration work for some, I don't know, I, I, I want to to take it away from just sort of something I'm doing on the side and maybe do more commission commission work in that space. So do you have like a dream client or a dream project that you'd want to do? <laughs> sort of. There's not a specific client. I, I think that I, I would just, I sort of believe that if I continue to work on my craft and, and refine it, that whatever's meant to happen will happen and that, that that right opportunity or that right client will find its way to me. So we'll see. I would love to do some sort of like partnership, uh, you know, and, but I don't know what that exactly looks like. I'm, I'm really open to wherever that goes. So, yeah. All right. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and your work and everything online? So I am on all the social media channels, uh, on Instagram at Kalina Sales, on Twitter at Kalina underscore sales. 
I think that's right. And I'm on LinkedIn. I would love to connect on LinkedIn to whoever would like to connect and stay, you know, in touch that way. So yeah, I'm, I'm on social media. My website is kalinasales.design. If you just want to kind of check that out and read a little bit more about what I'm up to there. So. Right. And we'll also put a link to the book in the show notes. Yay, thank you so much. Yeah. Kalina Sales, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for really helping to teach the next generation of designers. I mean, it floored me the first time when I heard a teacher tell me that, like, they actually use this podcast in their class. Because I do this, for people that know, I do this at home in my bedroom <laughs> and and the fact that it has this kind of reach where i know people yeah. are you know educators are teaching it around the world i think also speaks to this greater elasticization yeah. of the canon that you're speaking about and i'm just glad that you're there to help really guide and shepherd the next generation and also keep them true to their cultural identity as they do it like that is super yeah. important so thank you so much for coming on the show i appreciate it Thanks to Kalina Sales, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Kalina and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of the interview? Actually, what do you think about the podcast overall? Don't be a stranger. Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Let the world know about Revision Path because it really helps us grow and reach more people all around the world. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.